Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Got a message from Veronica from Vancouver. Vancouver. You're just launching right into yeah, it? Yeah. Okay. Veronica fine. from Vancouver. Hi, Veronica. Uh, she, she lives in Vancouver. You've mentioned that. Her name is Veronica. Okay. And uh, she just bought her VIP tickets to the San Francisco show. She is driving from another land. Oh, man. How far is that? I don't know. Siri? I tried to make Vancouver two words. <laughs> That's 16 hours. 16 hour drive? Yeah. Wow. Uh, if she was going to walk, it would take her 325 hours. You better get busy, Veronica. <laughs> we really appreciate the effort that you're putting into it. Oh, my it. gosh. That's, that's crazy. Tickets are on sale for all of our shows for the mini Halloween tour. We're 10 weeks away from yeah. the very first show. It's going to take Veronica longer to get there than it's going to take us to get there. Yeah, it's like, what, a, a six-hour flight? Something like that. Wow, we can give you a 10-hour start and we'll still kick your ass, Veronica. But we appreciate you so much. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, we won't kick your ass. Not that we could anyway. You Canadians are hearty. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. Um, hey, we can say stuff like that because we're from Maine and we're like Canadian light. It's true. <laughs> yeah. We're like all the things that are stereotypical Canadian, uh, but none of the good stuff. <laughs> Just <laughs> If you would like to join us for any of our shows, uh, we're going to be in San Francisco, Boston, Charlotte, and Nashville. All the details are at theboxofoddities.com. VIP tickets, there's only a few left. If you were thinking about getting some of those, jump on them now. Except for Nashville. Nashville VIP is sold out. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. And if you're coming from Vancouver, maybe you can get a ride with Veronica. (laughs) 
or at least be her walking partner. Oh, carpooling. <laughs> you know how we appreciate that. A freak parade. All right, go ahead. Your turn. You go first. Oh. Mm-hmm. So a while ago, mm-hmm. we were talking about something. I don't remember what it was. And you were all like, yeah, it's kind of like that uh, group of tiny people from the back in the day that they don't know if they were uh, ancient humans or if they were a different species altogether. The hobbits. The hobbits. The hobbit people. Yeah. I think that was in New Zealand. And I was all like, okay. <laughs> and uh, then I thought, well, this is something I have to look up because I had no idea what you were talking about. Oh, okay. So that's what we're talking about. <sighs> the hobbits. Oh, outstanding. So in the Indian... <laughs> so in the Indian... <laughs> I'm going to make that my ringtone. <laughs> All right. So in the Indonesian island of Flores in 2003, it's called the Liang Boy Cave and a joint Australian Indonesian team of archaeologists looking for evidence of original human migration of Homo sapiens from Asia to Australia found something pretty neat. It was a nearly complete skeleton of a hominin they dubbed LB1. LB1. Sounds like a rapper name. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. LB1 kicking it old school. (laughs) But like really old school. LB1 is a fairly complete skeleton, including a nearly complete cranium uh, determined to be from a 30 year old female. LB1 has been nicknamed Flo or the Little Lady of Flores, which I think is adorable. So most of the information that I am going to be citing today comes from Smithsonian, from Wikipedia, of course, and uh, Live Science, plus a Nova video that I found that was really cool. Anyway, Flo was interesting because she was tiny. Now, she has since been classified as homo Florensians, Flor, mm, Homo Floren, mm, Homo Floresiensis, Homo Floresiensis. You got it. Now, Flo, as I will refer to her and all the other Homo Florififas, stood about three feet six inches tall. They had tiny brains, large teeth for their pretty small size. <laughs> Shrugged forward shoulders, no chin, very short legs. So comparatively, you know how uh, generally you'd think of big feet being needed for a tall person to keep them stable. Well, considering the small stature, they had some pretty gnarly feet. So it was discussed. Is this someone with some sort of deficiency? Is this a defect congenital iron deficiency or some sort of combination of defects is this a new species entirely is this a race of tiny homo sapiens um scientists got together and they eventually decided this is this is a homo flow homo flow also sounds like a rapper name homo flow rider All right, that's what scientists say. What do ancient alien theorists think? Oh, well, I've got a lot of research based on what ancient alien theorists think. No, I don't. No. No. (laughs) Um, So, Flo was unveiled on 
<laughs> the 28th of October, 2004, swiftly nicknamed The Hobbit. So in addition to a very small body size, uh, Flo had a remarkably small brain size. Uh, the brain of LB1 is estimated to have a volume of 23 cubic inches, placing it at the range of chimpanzees. Is it a chimpanzee? No. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about Flo's brain is that it is not shaped the same as our brain. It's much broader and flatter. So we've got kind of this grapefruity brain and Flo had more like a hamburger bun brain. And what about the frontal lobe? Not quite, not as developed as I would imagine a modern homo sapiens brain. Well, what's interesting is they've discovered evidence that shows that uh, Flo had skills and abilities that would lead us to believe that she is much more advanced than, let's mm. say, a chimpanzee. Mm. So the theory is that her brain may have been smaller, but it worked in a different way so that she had the oh. capabilities of a much more advanced person in a much smaller brain. She was wired differently. Exactly. Kind of like computer chip versus um, solid state. Oh, I don't understand what you just said at all. So an indicator of intelligence is the size of the Brodmann's area 10. That's the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. That's an area of the brain associated with higher cognition. And LB1's region 10 is about the same size of that as of a modern human, despite the much smaller size overall okay so it's really interesting to think that she exactly is just wired differently like her brain just works in a different way there's evidence that Flo used stone tools hunted small elephants and large rodents wait a minute she was three foot six inches tall and she hunted elephants see here's the thing the elephants that she would have been dealing with were pygmy elephants and the uh, rodents that she would have been dealing with or the Komodo dragons that she would have been dealing Ooh. with would have been very large Komodo dragons. Certainly from her perspective. From anyone's perspective. So this is where we're going to get into insular dwarfism. There are some theories that Flo would have been a branch of our human development that was smaller, but also got trapped on an island. And oh. so just like pygmy elephants, just like pygmy bison would have, I don't know if the word suffered is right, but would have limited, changed. Yeah. Limited genetic resources, shall we say? Well, no, no, because of the resources, as far as, Nutrition, Food yeah, okay. Goes All right. Island animals tend to get smaller. That's fascinating. There are many examples of this. When a population's range is limited to a small environment, like an island, because of those limited resources, animals get smaller. It, yeah, okay, Th that makes sense. Except for cold-blooded animals, which in many cases get larger. And that makes sense too. So enormous komodo dragons spitting their botulism at you mm -hmm. and then tiny little elephants with huge tusks and then these little guys uh tootling about i imagine it was really hard to buy pants i would think yes mm. that on many levels it mm. would have been difficult to buy pants at least 
ones that weren't ill-fitting. Right. I had the same problem when I was at Kohl's the other day. I was in the petite section and still had to fold the bottom of the pants that I was trying on <laughs> up by four inches, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I'm not that short. I'm five, four and a half. Thank you very much, sir. Enjoy your day. Mm-hmm. But still, I had to hike these pants up and it looked like I was getting ready for some sort of flood. Or a hoedown. Or a hoedown. But they were really cute. They were like these tweed looking riding <laughs> pants. Yeah. And Anyway. Dr. Debbie Argue from ANU School of Archaeology and Anthropology said that the results of uh, the studies that they've done with Flo have helped to figure out her story. She said the analysis show that on the family tree, Homo floresiensis, <laughs> there's too many S's in there, uh, was likely a sister species of Homo habilis. Maybe you could just refer to that particular species as Hoflo. Hoflo is great. Yeah, it's easy. It's catchy. It rhymes. So it's possible, she said, that Hoflo evolved in Africa and migrated, or the common ancestor moved from Africa and then evolved into Hoflo somewhere. Mm. Uh, Dr. Argue said that the analysis also supported the theory that Hoflo could have branched off earlier in the timeline, more than 1.75 million years ago. And as I said, may have been a sister species to Homo habilis. Stone tools found on the island of Flores show that early humans arrived there at least a million years ago, but it's not known how early humans got there as the nearest island is about six miles away across the sea. So what they're thinking is that at that time in history, there uh, were uh, there, a lot of the water of the sea was locked into glaciers. Mm. So there would have been more land bridges, I see, I see. more opportunities for, you know, shorter distance, light swims. Right. If elephants could make it to the island, so could homo-ho flow. Ho-flow. Ho-flow. Homo-ho-flow. LB1 in the house. Just like that. Mm-hmm. Her small size may have helped to survive on that island with those limited resources. Is it possible that when she got there or when that group of hominids got there, that they were typical in size in comparison to other groups of... Yes. And then evolved yes. down. Yep. And that's that's the the current theory wow. is that she was a she was the sister species to Homo habilis and was a similar size. And then these hoflows got caught on this island, mm. and because of their location, had to adapt in order to be able to survive. Wow, that's fascinating. I wonder yeah. how long that process took. I uh, I know that that whole thing. I mean, I think it would be really interesting to di- like deep dive into insular dwarfism as a topic all by itself because mm. yeah. that is fascinating i didn't know there was such a thing as pygmy bison i want one and then uh, I, want, I want a pygmy bison that i can have like sleep up on the bed with us at night yes please and uh snuck can you imagine on a cold winter night how comfortable that would be sleeping with a bison right as long as you know you, you keep them clean absolutely and then keep in mind the komodo at that time would have weighed about like 500 pounds. I, I don't want a Komodo in my You bed. don't want to snuggle with a 500 mm, pound Komodo? No, 
Never. Spitting his anthrax at your face? Uh-uh. Mm-mm. That's what he does. I like to admire them from afar. Thank you for calling. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. So anyway, uh, Hoflo, there were, uh, there were and still is a lot of debate about who she is, what the story is. Um, there are some researchers who just believe that she is an early homo sapien ancestor with defects and, yeah, right, right, right. and just say, that's it. End and of story. She's the only one they found. No, no. No, there's more. They have found more. She was just the beginning. All right. I'm well, sorry. I didn't, I didn't dig in that. And then I really focused on flow, but that was because I had a hard time saying ho flow. I understand that. So the fact that there are more than one would indicate that it wasn't just a uh, genetic defect. You would think so. And there must be a way that we can determine how long it took for ho flow and her group to evolve to a smaller size, because we have a pretty good idea, right? As to when they migrated from Asia, and then we can date how old her remains are, and then just do the math. Well, you don't know at what point during... It would narrow it down. I suppose. All right, that's my project for next week. Okay. I would try to work it out, but once I start dealing with big numbers, I get confused about how many zeros there should be. I understand that. So yeah, LB1, flow, pretty amazing, tiny, chock full of skills, uh, even though she had a weird hamburger bun brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, I'm taken aback by how amazing. Also, if you want to check out that Nova video, it was super interesting. It was only like 11 minutes long, Um, but it really kind of encapsulated like the discovery of HoFlow and uh, the idea of what her life would have been like on that island. I just searched for homo flu- Yeah, um, sure. And then Nova. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be able to easily find it with those clues. And now it's time for That Thing in the Middle. Hey, you remember Kim Jong-il? That was Kim Jong-un's dad. Yeah, I heard he wasn't well. Yeah, I know he died, like, in 2011. Well, he was ill. You know how he liked to be called Dear Leader? Sure. You know, you hear that all the time. Dear leader. Well, there were more titles that were bestowed upon him by himself. Oh, okay. I've made a list. Here's your copy. You could never refer to him just by his name. You also had to include one of these (laughs) 1,200 titles. (laughs) These are amazing. (laughs) Okay. Oh, my gosh. There are so many to choose from. I know. I know. Can we make this like a recurring? I, I think we should. Thing in the middle. Number five, eternal bosom of hot love. Number four, guiding star of the 21st century. Number three, master of the computer who surprised the world. So you had to say that before you said his name. Master of the computer who surprised the world, Kim Jong-il. So nice to meet you, Kim Jong-il. Ever victorious iron willed commander. And the number one self imposed title for Kim Jong il, Humankind's Greatest Musical Genius. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, he was a musical genius. And he was not only a musical genius, genius, he was humankind's greatest. I thought that was Kanye. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, 
In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories, like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Oh man, I agonized over this one. I I didn't know whether or not to do this. I decided to go ahead with it, but I'm going to warn you up front. Rough? Wow. It's rough. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so, kind of rough. Like well, feelings rough yeah, or like, okay. Yeah, feelings rough. Oh no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For decades now, there's a house that is located at 1631 South Wilton Place in Los Angeles. Uh, it's been known for very strange occurrences. Although it's changed hands over the years because, you know, it's it's been around for about 100 years. The stories remain the same. They involve an apparition of a young girl wearing clothing that dates from the 1920s. Now, she's never threatening. There's not like any kind of uh, poltergeist activity in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. She seems very sad and confused, and she just seems to wander around the house as if she's looking for something or someone. According to a guy named Richard Carradine, who is a um, an expert on this particular case... Is he one of the Carradine brothers? Like Keith or David? Yeah. I don't know, but that would be cool. He <laughs> is in Los Angeles, so maybe. But according to him, this spirit of a young girl has been seen just wandering around the house and actually the block where the house is located in Los Angeles. And oftentimes she is spotted and she is missing an arm or a leg. The name they've assigned to her is the Jigsaw Ghost. Oh, That's different from the jigsaw that I'm familiar with. So according to a 1990 LA Times article, a couple of people who owned the house, Michelle Pelland and Steve Daly, they bought the house in 1988 and had it for a few years and then sold it. And they said that they believed that the ghost of a young girl lived with them. According to many parapsychologists, ghosts, they they seek out places where they were the happiest. Sure. Or places that they were attracted to during their earthly lives. I've heard that it, the theory is that it can really go either way. Either the places where they found peace and happiness or the places where like traumatic, horrible, terrible things happen. That is true. And that plays into the whole, is it an intelligent haunting or a residual oh. haunting? Okay. Places of... Uh, disaster or horror many experts say that those tend to be more residual hauntings they're not intelligent it's like it's like a tape playing back over and over again that's been imprinted because of extremely high emotions that's why they say like gettysburg is so haunted it's mostly residual this seems to be more of a intelligent haunting they they reported hearing footsteps quite often on the stairs and finding uh, various objects that have been moved around at times, lights would go on and off for no reason. They said they felt they were sharing the, the space with a 
you know, a benevolent, non-threatening spirit, they would hear a little girl giggle Okay. in other rooms. And that's not terrifying? I would shit my pants <laughs> if I heard that. I suppose you would get used to it, though. If you knew that there was like some sort of thing mm. going on in your house, the giggling wouldn't seem so out of place and so creeptastic. Back in 1974, the owners at the time, now these, these people were very skeptical of the idea of ghosts, and uh, they didn't know the history of this particular home, but they often heard footsteps on the stairs, and their cat seemed to acknowledge uh, somebody in the room quite often. You know how they say animals are more sensitive to these sorts of things, especially yeah, cats. But with cats, I would just suspect they were efforting to acknowledge anyone but you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I'd rather look at the corner than your stupid face. Here's my ass. I'm a cat. Their dog, however, was was extremely disturbed by the, present. the cat, uh, presence. The cat would just stare in one direction. The dog would look in the same direction and bark. It was very agitated. And they occasionally caught a glimpse a number of times of a figure out of the corner of their eye. And they had a similar experience of um, utensils missing from the kitchen, uh, things being placed in, in weird upside down positions. That would freak me out. Maybe there's a crow living in their house. They love shiny things and they frequently move things around. That's true, but they don't have opposable thumbs. So what they can move is limited. Now, when the LA Times contacted these people to talk about it, while they were talking about it, the lights in their house started going on and off. And, oh, really? Yeah. They did not know the history of the house. Yeah, you mentioned that. What is the history of the house? Well, during this interview, and when the lights were going on and off, they learned after researching that that night was the 47th anniversary of the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker. Oh. According to Wikipedia, Marion Parker was the 12-year-old daughter of Perry Parker, a prominent banker in the Los Angeles area. He, uh, he had twins. Uh, they, she was a twin. Her sister was named Marjorie. The Los Angeles Times referred to the murder of Marion Parker as, quote, the most horrible crime of the 1920s. Oh, my goodness. And according to Cemetery Guide, and this is a pretty thorough article, on Thursday, December 15th, 1927, just before lunchtime, a very well-dressed man, he had dark wavy hair, he rushed into the Mount Vernon Junior High School, which is located on 17th Street in Los Angeles. He found the office uh, manager, whose name was Mary Holt, and he told her that he worked at the same bank that Marion Parker's dad worked at mm -hmm. and that her dad had been seriously injured in an automobile accident he said that parker was asking to see his daughter who of course was a student at that school sure and he'd been sent to retrieve her now mary holt the office worker said she was a little suspicious about the man because he asked for parker's younger daughter and of course they were twins right you know it seemed a little odd he didn't ask for both. He asked for the younger daughter. Both students were at the school. They were both 12 years old at the time. When they questioned him further about it, he said that he was sent to pick up, quote, the smaller one. So they hesitated. 
Well, good, yeah. I guess. But this is 1927. And they were just handing out H- kids. Handing, handing kids out like candy. Sure. Holt told her, I am an employee of the bank where Mr. Parker is chief clerk. If there is any doubt in your mind, here is the bank's telephone number you may call there. He was pretty sincere, and that was enough for her, I guess. And so... um and, and apparently, and no, she, always call. Yeah, yeah. No, you call that bluff. You go, great, give me just a moment and I will make that call. Thank you, sir. And then he will tootle off and you will go, see, another baby saved. Thank you. Thank that, you. That would have been great, but it didn't happen. She sent for Marion and Marion was uh, in a Christmas party in the school at the time. Oh. Now, when she arrived, the uh, the guy, he, he patted her on the arm comfortingly, told her that her father had been in a car accident and that he was going to take her to him, that he thought she was he was going to be OK. And of course, she thought her father was injured. So she went along without any, any, any she's 12 years old. He escorted her out to his waiting car. Now, as they were walking out, Marion's sister, Marjorie, said she saw them walking out and didn't know what was going on. She later told police she did not recognize the man, but she described him as a white male, 25 to 30 years old, five to eight inches, slender build. Five to eight inches? Five. tiny man. No wonder he wanted the smaller daughter. He was a hobbit. No, five foot, eight inches, sorry. Um, Very slender build, thin features, dark brown wavy hair. That evening, Perry Parker received a telegram at his home. And by the way, it was less than a mile away from the school. The telegram was sent at 6.20 p.m. and told Parker that his daughter had been kidnapped and to expect further telegrams with ransom demands. <sighs> Quote, Marion is secure. Use good judgment. Interference with my plans dangerous. Police suspected that the man was familiar with the Parker family since he knew that Parker worked at the bank. Right. But not familiar enough to know that he had twins. That's yeah, that's true. They didn't they didn't catch that. But Parker wasn't at work that day. He stayed home that day because it was his forty eighth birthday. Oh no! The next day, he received a uh, a special delivery letter. It wasn't a telegram. It demanded fifteen hundred dollars for his daughter's safe return. According to the letter, quote, fulfilling these terms with the transfer of currency will secure the return of the girl. Failure to comply with these requests means no one will ever see the girl again except the angels in heaven. The affair must end one way or another within three days, 72 hours. You'll receive further notice, end quote. And then it was signed by the Fox. Ugh. I know how you hate. I do. Death. I hate it when they give murderers nicknames, but when the murderer chooses one for himself, it really pisses me off. It's just, it's, it's sad is what it is. It's like the kid in high school who's like, you know, they, they call me Burley or whatever. I don't know. That's not a great name. Um, Then it's like, no one calls you that. And he's all like, yeah, you're right. I have a really beautiful girlfriend, but she lives in Canada. Right. So 2,000 police officers worked on this case. 2,000? 2,000 uh, throughout Southern California. Well, the guy was, a, you know, a banker, you know, so he was an upstanding citizen. And so anyway, after uh, Parker received additional telegrams and actually a couple of phone calls with increasing threats that he was that the uh, kidnapper was going to kill Marion if the demands were not met. 
police decided that, that the best thing to do to get Marion home safely was to pay their ransom. So the next time that the kidnapper, kidnapper called Parker, they arranged a meeting for that evening at 10th Street and Gramercy Place. But the kidnapper got a little flustered because he noticed that police vehicles were following the Parker's car. So he did not keep the appointment. Mm-hmm. Another letter showed up at the house. This one was written by Marion. It said, quote, Dear Daddy and Mommy, I wish I could come home. I think I'll die if I have to be like this much longer. Won't someone tell me why all this had to happen to me? Daddy, please do what this man tells you or he will kill me if you don't. Your loving daughter, Marion Parker. P.S. Please, Daddy, I want to come home tonight. The morning of Saturday, December 17th, Parker received another telegram demanding the $1,500. And they set up a meeting for that evening at 7.30 p.m. Parker received a phone call, told told him to immediately leave his home with the money and go to the corner of 5th Street and Manhattan Place in Los Angeles. Kidnapper said he would pull up beside Parker's car show him that Marion was safe, take the money, and would drop Marion off a block away. As instructed, her dad left the house with the money. He didn't tell the police this time. Mm-hmm. Right after he arrived at the meeting spot, a Chrysler pulled up beside Parker's car with Marion sitting in the front seat. Uh, the kidnapper, the driver, he had a handkerchief over his face, and he was pointing a, shot, a sawed-off shotgun at Parker, and he said, I, you know what I'm here for? He then pointed at Marion in the front seat of the uh, the car. Here's your kid. Give me the money and follow instructions. So Parker handed over the money and he followed the car to 432 South Manhattan Place where the car door opened and the kidnapper pushed Marion out onto the lawn. I guess Parker tried to get the license plate number, but the guy sped off too fast. He was only able to get partial number. So Mr. Parker jumps out of the car. He runs over to his daughter. And his daughter is um, wrapped in towels. Both of her legs had been cut off close to the body. Her arms had been cut off. She'd been disemboweled. Her body was stuffed with a towel. And wires had been twisted tightly around her neck, cutting deeply into the skin. Oh, my God. Up the back of her neck was a wire that was bent and wrapped around her forehead to hold her head up. Her eyelids were sewn open with black thread to make it appear as though she was still alive. She'd been, uh, she'd been dead for hours before she was dumped out of the car. The first major clue in the case came from one of the towels that was stuffed inside her body. It was identified as coming from the Bellevue Arms apartment in an area in the uh, northwest of Angelino Heights. So they went and uh, investigated and a man fitting the uh, description of the suspect had rented an apartment in the back in uh, room 305. His name, the name he had given anyway, was Donald Evans. He was later determined to be William Edward Hickman. By the time the police arrived to search the apartment, he was gone. They found fingerprints. They found thread that matched the thread that he sewed their, her eyes open mm-hmm. with. On the 20th of December, he was formally charged with kidnapping and murder, and the search was massive to find this guy. He was finally arrested on December 22nd in Oregon, 
near the Washington border. He said quietly, well, I guess it's all over. And in the police car, all the way back to Los Angeles, he um, pretty much confessed to everything. Hickman said he brought Marion to his apartment and strangled her with a towel because he said, I was afraid she would make a noise. He placed her body in the bathtub and he cut off her arms and legs. Why? She apparently recognized him because he was, in fact, an employee of the bank that had been laid off. I see. And she knew who he was. So he killed her. He strangled her. Then he decided, well, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to have to dispose of the body. So he put her in the bathtub and he started cutting her up. He sliced her open at the waist. And then he put her body on a shelf with a towel underneath to soak up the blood while it drained out. Holy shit. He said, I knew that if I refused to take her back Saturday morning, she might distrust me enough to give some sign which would cause my discovery. This is what he wrote in his confession. Yet, I felt that if not that if I did take her back in the daylight, I, I might fall in a trap and be caught. So in order to go through with my plans enough to get the money and keep Marion from ever knowing while she was killed that I would disappoint her confidence in me, I killed her suddenly and unexpectedly. As she passed beyond consciousness so quickly and unexpectedly that she never had a fear or thought of her own death. Then in order to get her out of my apartment without notice, I was prompted after uh, she was um, unconscious to dissect her body. And then he started to think after he began cutting her up, well, how am I going to get the money? Right. So that's why he did all the horrible, horrible, gross things with the threat and such. Yep. And the wires. What a disgusting person uh, who's also very unorganized and obviously terrible at this. He was a 19-year-old guy. Who apparently felt like he was entitled to someone else's money and obviously had some sort of grudge against a guy who did well. Yep, Yep. that's exactly right. He got fired Mm -hmm. from this bank, probably by Marion's father. Right. And so he wanted to exact some revenge, but at the same time, he needed money. Do you know what he wanted that $1,500 for? To pay tuition to Bible college. So after unsuccessful appeals, all the way to the Supreme Court, Hickman was hanged on October 9th, uh, October 19th, rather, 1928 at San Mm -hmm. Quentin State Prison. And when that happened, I mean, he... He, he talked a big game while he was in prison about how he wasn't afraid to die mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. However, when he was being led to the gallows, he collapsed on the stairs sobbing mm-hmm. and they had to carry him up. And as he stood on the trap door with the noose around his neck, he again uh, fell forward right before the trap door opened. And when the door opened, because he wasn't standing upright, it did not break his neck and he hung by his neck and kicked and strangled okay. for like five minutes before Ugh. he died. Then he was buried in a uh, unmarked grave in an area of the cemetery reserved for indigents. In the house at 1631 South Wilton Place, they're still reporting and hearing things that lead them to believe that Marion is um, still looking for her family. Marvin Wolf, who's an author, he wrote a book called Fallen Angels, telephoned the then owners of the house to tell them about the famous kidnapping and murder. And she did not, the lady that he was talking to that lived in the house uh, did not know about it. She interrupted and she said, oh, that accounts for the ghost. Yeah. It seems that uh, 
The owners had noticed what they felt was a a benevolent small child spirit who moved around small objects, occasionally could be heard walking through the house. And And giggling. And giggling. And, And while the author was telling the story to the owners, the lights started flashing on and off. Right. A few years later, paranormal researchers from the from UCLA, uh, they confirmed, in their opinion, a ghostly presence. The house was sold to a guy named James Stokes, who said he didn't believe in ghosts at all. He said he spent a quiet decade in the house with no eerie happenings. And later, after contracting to sell the house, he was packing up his stuff and things started to happen. Things started to disappear. He started hearing footsteps, all the same type of thing. He said, I don't believe in ghosts, but maybe she doesn't want to see me go. Mm. One former owner of the house said that at night, on several occasions, she would be sitting in her bedroom reading and she would hear the voice of a young girl asking, have I died? Stop it. Marion Parker. L.A. Times says the most horrific murder of the 1920s. It's terrible. I mean, remove all the ghosty stuff, and that is a horrendous, tragic story. And again, I can't help but be just disgusted by the the idea that these people come up with that what they want is more important than someone else's life. Yeah. And I want to go to Bible college. So this kid's going to die for a $1,500 tuition bill. Right. It's a weird entitlement thing and it's gross. Plus why did he call himself the Fox? That is so douchey. It's like the worst name ever. What was that post that you, uh, you put up? Oh yeah. Let's stop giving murderers cool names and instead call them what they are yeah it was a tweet from post culture review we need to stop giving serial killers cool names like the night stalker or the green river killer we should remove the mystique make it sound less appealing the micro penis maniac (laughs) bobby dipshit the stupid murderer yeah what would this guy's name be his real name was william edward hickman um what about what about William Edward Dickhead? Right? Yeah. <laughs> I like right? it. Yeah. I'm glad he strangled. I kind of am too. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about all that, but yeah. In this case, yeah. yeah. All right. That's all I'm going to talk well, about. That was terrible. Thank you. That was thanks, you're, for, you're thanks for bringing that terrible thing. You're, well, you're welcome. I don't have anything to add to that, nor no, do I think I should. Dogs. You're going to get the dogs for more pug snortles. <laughs> all right. This is two episodes in a row with pug snortles. The box of oddities, it happens a couple of times a week and it ends up on your phone. And we are so glad that you're part of the Freak family. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2019 All rights reserved